Father and Son and Holy Spirit, with these gifts, again we pray that you would continue to build, to extend, to enlarge the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ by your grace and power, extending that kingdom as far as the curse is found, to the praise of your glorious name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we will read verses 13 through 20. This this passage about which uh, so much uh, could and, and has been said. Uh, this passage that is known as Peter's Confession. So read with me. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you so much that you are at work, uh, and you worked in Peter's life, and it is a rich thing for us to watch that work unfold. And so as we look at this portion of your word, would you help us? We need your spirit. Would you help us to understand and apply your word to our own lives, each according to our need? We ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Now, just a quick word of explanation as to why we're looking at Matthew 16 this morning. Here's the sequence of things, and I do this for those of you uh, who are here seasonally, as well as for those of you who may be a little bit newer to Christ the King. Uh, We've just come out of the Advent season, the Christmas season, and Epiphany. We extended the Epiphany uh, season, if you will, an extra Sunday to look a second time at Matthew chapter 2 and the passage concerning uh, the Magi. Uh, But before that, we were in a series... um, on the life of Peter, if you can remember back to October and the early part of November. And then before that, we were in Romans. Romans has been the staple of the life of our church since we moved into this building a little over four years ago. And we were in chapter 12, and we were wrestling through what Paul is talking about in those first two verses when, when he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, brothers and sisters... I urge you, 
that you not be conformed any longer to this world, but that you be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and we left those verses, having looked at them for about eight Sundays, to look at the life of Peter, to look at the life of someone who is changed, somebody who undergoes real change, or to use the, the language of Romans chapter 12, someone who is transformed, someone who is metamorphosized, somebody who is different, somebody who is being renewed in his mind. Change is what you see in Peter's life. Christianity is about change. Jesus is about change. You read this passage, and it's a remarkable passage, but let's be real clear about this. Peter is still undergoing change at this point in his life. He's changed, as we'll see, but he's still undergoing change because Peter is the one who, right after this passage, rebukes Jesus for even hinting at, even suggesting that he would go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter then has to learn as Jesus then rebukes Peter that anybody attempts, who attempts to save his life, preserve his life, keep his life will in fact lose it. But the one who loses his life for Jesus is the one who actually will find it. And if you go on to read Peter's two letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, what you see is sort of the end of the story. You know, the rest of the story. Where in Peter's letters, there are these recurring themes of suffering and loss and of embracing what, what is inevitable if one is to follow in the steps of Jesus, if one is to be a Christian, what is inevitable is that at some level or another, to some degree or another, the Christian life will be a life of suffering and loss. And the question is, how does somebody like Peter who seems bent upon, determined to preserve, to protect, to keep, to save his life, how does he get to the place where at the end of his life, he doesn't care anymore? He, in fact, cares about only one thing, and that is to have his vision increased more and more and more with the glory of Jesus. How do you get there? Well, that's why we're looking at Peter's life. That's why we're looking at his experience. And what happens in this passage, in the context of the unfolding story of Peter's life, is critical. It's critical. And there is a real lesson for us to learn here. There's going to be growth and change for us than what 
is happening here for Peter must happen in us. The same thing has to happen in us. So I'm going to suggest to you that there is something here about Peter, and that's where we're going to focus our time. But there's also something here about the Father, and there is something here about the church. So there's something here about Peter. Look at what Peter says in response to the question that Jesus puts to him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now let's put this in in some context. The text tells us that Jesus and his disciples are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Where is that? Right? Where is Caesarea Philippi? Well, let me encourage you, if you can, to visualize the Holy Land. Let me, let me encourage you to try to create a map in your minds of the land of Israel. It's located along the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. Egypt is to the south. Modern-day Lebanon is to the north. Syria, modern-day Syria, is to the north and to a little bit east. And about 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea is the Jordan River that runs north and south, probably at its closest point to the Mediterranean. It's about 50 miles. And the Jordan River runs from the extreme north, from Mount Hermon, the headwaters of the Jordan are Mount Hermon, runs south to the Sea of Galilee, which is a distance of 25 or 30 miles. And then it runs south from there through the valley, through the Jordan River Valley to the Dead Sea, maybe another 60 to 70 miles. And then from there, it runs farther south to the Gulf of Arabia, to Elat, the current city of Elat. Jerusalem is located on a ridge just to the west of the Jordan Valley and just west, maybe 25 or 30 miles, from the northern shore of the Dead Sea. And it's about 60 miles or so then from Jerusalem back up to the Sea of Galilee. So the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, which is up in that northern region are 85, 90, maybe 100 miles from Jerusalem. And they've been, if you read the previous passages and chapters, they've been along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and from there they've traveled up into Tyre and Sidon, which is current modern-day Lebanon. And then they've come back, and then from that western shore of the Sea of Galilee, they've gone up to Caesarea Philippi, where they currently are having this conversation. And what have they been doing all this time? And by the way, remember, no buses, no trains, no airplanes. They're doing all of this on foot, okay? How far can you walk in a day? 10, 20 miles maybe? See, it takes time to do all of this, right? Is there trucking around this northern part of the land. And what are they doing all this time? Well, it seems pretty clear from the rest of the Gospels that what they're doing is listening to Jesus preach. That's what Jesus was doing. He was going to the villages and the towns all throughout the region of Galilee and beyond, and he was preaching and teaching in their synagogues. 
And he was performing miracles, and he's doing things like feeding 5,000 people and feeding 4,000 people. And he's healing people of diseases while he's preaching and teaching and doing these other things. And he's attracting a whole lot of attention, so much so that if you look at verse 1 of chapter 16... People are sent from Jerusalem, most probably, Pharisees and Sadducees. And to put those terms in some sort of vernacular that helps us understand who they were, the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of the day. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. They are not friendly with one another, except they have a common enemy. And who's the common enemy? Jesus. And so representatives, both of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hit the paths and truck their way up to the region of Galilee to interrogate Jesus. So what have the disciples been doing as they're now gathered in this remote place? They've been watching all of this. And they've been listening. They've listened to the interrogations from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they've been listening both to Jews and Gentiles. It's Gentiles who live up in Tyre and Sidon, who receive the benefits of Jesus' ministry as a little foreshadowing of the fact that the gospel is going to go beyond this one region and this one people group, and it's going to extend itself to the ends of the earth. So they've been listening to Jews respond to Jesus. They've been listening to Gentiles respond to Jesus. They've been listening to the religious elites respond to Jesus. And so Jesus, in this conversation in Caesarea Philippi, a fairly remote place where he's gone off again with his disciples, Jesus asks, so what are people saying about me? What are they saying? What are you hearing? What's the word on the street? They give their answer. Now, all we get is this very quick exchange between Jesus and these disciples, right? We don't get any of the details. But I can't help but think about details as I read this passage. What are people saying about me? Do they look at each other? Gee, this is a test. We, we, we don't want to get the test wrong. We want to give him a good answer. They look at one another. They say, what do you think? What do you think? What should we say? And so they give an answer. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. John the Baptist was dead by this time. Maybe he's been raised from the dead. He was a man of mighty works and mighty power. Maybe Maybe John the Baptist. Others are saying Elijah. Others are saying Jeremiah or another of the prophets. He's getting all this feedback from them. And then he asks this question. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Again, are they sitting? Are they standing? Are they in a circle? Are they just sort of scattered a little bit? Are they looking at each other? Is the response an immediate response? What's their tone of voice? 
And when Peter responds, what does Peter do? Does he step forward? Does he stand up from sitting? Does he look around at the other guys and and say, I don't want to blow this. We don't know. We don't know these details. But as I envision this thing, if I'm Cecil B. DeMille, and I'm directing the script that's been written, I've got Peter seated. I've got Peter sort of leaning, resting his head in a hand rested upon a knee that's sort of tucked up against his chest. And I've got in the script this pregnant pause that follows these various responses. And then Peter, from a sitting position, having listened to all of the others, stands up, looks directly into the face of Jesus, and perhaps trembling a bit, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, why why would I depict Peter's response in that way? See, we hear these words, for most of us in this room, those are words that just kind of roll off the tongue and they land on our eardrums. We've heard them so many times. The impact is no longer felt. But the others may be sitting around saying, he said it. He really said it. As Bono, the lead singer in the band U2, puts it in this book of conversations that he had, he used the M word. He used the M word. Messiah. You are the Messiah. The son of the living God. Christ is the Greek word. And I know many of you know this. But Christ is the Greek word that renders the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning anointed one. You are the anointed one. And what you need to know or remember, which makes this so impactful and so powerful and such a transitional moment in Peter's life and for the lives of the other apostles and in fact for the life of the whole church, From that point forward, you need to remember or you need to know that there were three kinds of people anointed in Israel. Kings were anointed. David was taken from the sheep pens and was brought to Samuel. And Samuel poured oil on his head and anointed him. As king. After David's death, Solomon's, Solomon was anointed, David's son, the fruit of his marriage to Bathsheba. Solomon was anointed by Zadok the priest. Kings were anointed, kings were Messiah, anointed one. Prophets 
were anointed in Israel. Isaiah 61, this this wonderful, wonderful passage begins with these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Prophets were anointed. Prophets were Messiah. Priests were anointed. Psalm 133. This this delightful passage in this collection of, of little psalms that were sung as people would go up to Jerusalem for Passover. It was a progression of psalms as people would sing, going up, ascending. That's why they're called songs of ascent, because they would ascend and go up to Jerusalem. And this is one of the ones they would sing. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Priests were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Kings were anointed. They were all Messiah. Kings were anointed to rule God's people. Prophets were anointed to receive from God and to speak God's word to God's people for God's people's good and well-being. Priests were anointed, set apart, particularly Aaron, but the whole of the Levitical priesthood set apart for the purpose of making sacrifices, offering sacrifices, standing between the people and God and God and the people, all culminating on that glorious and dramatic day of atonement when the priest would take blood from a slain goat and would carry it into the presence of God and would offer that substitute blood to stand in the place of the blood of sinners. And when he would come out, when he would come out of that holy place, having been in the presence of God, it would be as though, as priest, he were speaking to the whole of the nation and were saying, Te absolvo. You are absolved. Not because I as a priest have power to absolve. But because the God of heaven and earth receives the substitute. And so now as a priest, I come out and speak a word of peace to the people. John Calvin believed, and I'll take you to the passage in the Institutes if you doubt me, that the highest privilege of a minister of the gospel was the privilege of saying to the people of God, in the name of and on the basis of the merit and mediation of Jesus Christ, I declare your sins are forgiven. Kings, prophets, priests were Messiah. 
So you see what Peter is saying? Peter is standing for the rest of the apostles and he is saying, you are the king. You are the prophet. You are the priest. Not another flawed and imperfect king like every other king we've seen. Not another prophet who simply is a conduit receiving a word from God for the people of God, but you are in fact the prophet, the word from the Father. You are the priest. And as priest, you will make the perfect sacrifice offering your blood as the substitutionary blood in the place of the blood of sinners. And as though to punctuate it, Peter says this one more thing. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And folks, Peter, there is no question that Peter who grew up in church Peter who sang psalms, Peter who heard psalms, there is no question in my mind or anybody else's mind who's thinking clearly about these things. Not that I'm always thinking clearly about stuff. But there is no question that Peter is referring to Psalm 2, the passage that we referred to last week. The Lord said to me, you are my son Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. See what Peter's saying? Peter's not messing around here, folks. Peter is going right to the heart and core of who Jesus is and what he does. And let's just remember that there's been a progression for Peter. We have to do this quickly. But let's just remember that there's been growth for Peter. There's been progression for Peter. John chapter 1, when Jesus is introduced to Peter by Andrew, his brother, Peter has nothing to say. Do you remember that? Everybody else is talking. Andrew's talking. These people are talking. Jesus speaks about himself. Peter is silent. But you come to Luke chapter 5, and after that long night of fishing, when Jesus says, put the nets out again, Peter says, Master, we've worked all night. But at your bidding, we'll do what you say. So they put down the nets and there's this great catch of fish. And you see there's a shift, isn't there? He's no longer master, but now Peter addresses Jesus as Lord. And he not only addresses him as Lord, he's saying something by implication about him. He says about himself that he is a sinner, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
He's beginning to understand that there is something quantitatively, qualitatively different about Jesus. No longer master, now he is Lord. And then Matthew 14, the walking on the water thing, he calls him Lord and he says, Lord, if it is you, bid me come and I will come. And he bids him come and he goes. And as long, you see, this is the lesson, isn't it? As long as his vision is filled with Jesus as Lord, he does the unimaginable and the unthinkable. He walks on water. And the minute his vision begins to be filled with something else, he's toast. And they get back in the boat And the last verse of that passage in Matthew 14 says they worshipped Him and identified Him as the Son of God. Do you see what's happening? Do you see the shift? Do you see what's taking place for Peter? And so now here we are in Matthew 16. And Peter takes yet another step. From saying nothing, to calling him master, to identifying him as Lord, to recognizing him as the Son of God, he now calls him Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, son of the living God. Folks, here's the deal. Here's the bottom line. You want change in your life, don't you? If you don't, we need to chat. Because you're not getting an accurate handle on yourself. You want change in your life. The question is, how does real, deep, life-altering change come to a person? And this is so counterintuitive and so countercultural, but real and deep and lasting change will never come to your life through some technique, through some therapy, through some medicine. Folks, I'm being as direct as I know how to be here because there's a lot at stake. Real, deep, life-altering change begins to happen and continues to happen and culminates with an ever-growing apprehension of the majesty and glory and beauty and loveliness and uniqueness and wonder and grace and sweetness of Jesus the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. Any other change, folks, is going to be superficial and cosmetic, temporary, impermanent. What happens for Peter? This is the lesson to be learned. This is right out of Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, brothers, 
in view of God's mercies that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does change come? It comes as I keep the mercies of God ever in view. And who, what is at the center of the mercies of God? It's not a therapy. It's not a a gimmick. It's not a technique. It's not some clever insight. Real, deep, lasting change begins, continues, and culminates in an increasing, ever-increasing apprehension of the beauty of Jesus. Folks, as Jesus gets bigger, everything else fades away. Everything else fades away. Becomes inconsequential. This is where I started. Isn't it fascinating? And you can read this this week. You can read this. Read Second Peter. Isn't it fascinating that in Peter's last letter, as Peter thinks about his own death, and he uses the word departure, which is the same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 9 to describe his departure. And the Greek word is exodus. As Peter contemplates his own exodus, using the very word that Jesus used to describe what was going to happen when he went to Jerusalem, was betrayed, was crucified, and then was raised. It was an exodus. It was a road out. Peter uses the same word. As he talks about that exodus, as he talks about his own death, what he reflects upon is his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. See, we move from this passage in Matthew 16 in the very, very near future to that experience on the mountain where Jesus takes Peter and James and John up into the mountain and in their presence, his humanity slips to the ground and the full splendor of his glory is made manifest and Peter rightly wants to stay there. It is good that we are here. And as Peter contemplates his own end, his own death, his own exodus. You can see it in the first chapter of 2 Peter. The thing he reflects upon is that experience on the mountain of transfiguration. He wants nothing more than for his vision of the glory of Christ to be enlarged. For Christ to be bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I said there's something here about God as well. This isn't just Peter's confession. This is God's confession. This is the confession of the Father. Because the text tells us that Peter hasn't figured this out because he's so smart. 
Peter hasn't figured this out at all. It has been revealed to him. Folks, this is critical. I'm not a mean-spirited person. I do not pick fights, but this is critical. When God speaks about himself, he speaks about the Son. When God reveals himself, he reveals the Son. I was in a doctor's office this last week. I forgot to bring a book. There was a delay, so I picked up a copy of People magazine. There's a little thing in it about Queen Latifah talking about her faith. And she talks about her faith in God. Her faith in God. Her faith in God. Her faith in God. I wanted to say, one of two things is happening here. Either the editors of this magazine expunged the most important thing about her faith in God, or she does not embrace the most important thing about God, Jesus Christ. Someone gave me a book this last week. It's a book that I want to read more closely. It's a book about a physician who was a non-believer, an atheistic person, a medical person who contracted a serious disease and was comatose. And when he woke up, he started talking about all of the things that he saw, talking about heaven and clouds and hearing music and seeing things. And this member of our congregation gave this to me and said, tell me what you think. And so I've done a quick perusal of it. And folks, I can't find Jesus anywhere in it. I don't know what did happen. I've got some thoughts about what happened with this guy. But Jesus is nowhere to be found. When the Father wants to speak about himself, he speaks about the Son When the Father reveals Himself, His revelation is in the Son. I've got a third illustration, and I'm not going to use it because it bears on something right here in Indian River County, and I find it tragic every time I I see it and confront it. We're specific ministers of the gospel. I'm getting very close, aren't I? Specific ministers of the gospel will write and will speak and you are hard-pressed to find Jesus anywhere. When the Father speaks, it is the Son who is at the center of His speech. It is God who revealed to Peter that his son is the Christ, the son of the living God. It comes from the Father. And I said, finally, that there is something here about the church. Folks, to cut a very, very long discussion, very, very short, it is this confession that is at the center of the life of the church. It is Peter's confession. It is the Father's confession. And the church simply is not the church if the church does not make this confession. I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The rock, Peter, is not Peter the man. The rock, Peter, is Peter the apostle 
being entrusted with from the Father the truth about the Son. And it is upon that confession that the church has been and ever will be built. In this place and to the ends of the earth. You want to ask what will bring change to your life? What will bring change to your marriage? What will bring change to your family? What will bring change to your local culture? What will be, here's what will bring change. By God's grace, he's sovereign in these things. But by God's grace, as he is sovereign, the thing that will bring change, whether personally or more widespread, is the centrality of Jesus Christ. He, he is the agent of change. And what brings change is an ever-increasing, as we are seeing in Peter's life, an ever-increasing apprehension of the beauty and loveliness and glory of King, Priest, Prophet, Jesus. Got to leave you with this. John Frame, theologian, writes this, The church's problems today are not usually problems that can be solved by by more novel interpretations of this or that passage. Our theological problems arise from our failure to note what is obvious. And this is what is obvious. Would you change? Would you have change be a part of your life? Would we change as a church? The most needful thing as we stand at the head of this year, whether individually or corporately, is that by God's grace, Jesus grows larger and larger and larger in our vision. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, make yourself bigger. Make us smaller. Make us more aware of how needy we are. Make yourself bigger, we pray. To the glory and honor of your name. Amen. Let's stand together.